Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of Relationship Radio. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing itstartswithattraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to itstartswithattraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. Good evening and welcome to the Joe Bean Show. Tonight we're going to be talking about love and particularly when people fall madly in love. Think of it this way. Let's say there's a young man and a young woman and they find themselves attracted to each other. The attraction might come from physical reasons. He looks at her, sees her as attractive. She views him the same way. It could be that the attraction also includes what we call an intellectual attraction, which means that they have enough in common with each other that they can actually talk to each other and understand each other. What that means is often they'll come from a similar socioeconomic background or a similar educational background or a similar religious background. And because of their commonality, when they visit with each other, it's like, wow, you know, we have enough in common that we can understand what we're about. And probably they're emotionally attached or attracted, I should say, to each other. Meaning the things that you do evoke emotions within me that I enjoy feeling. And the same happens the other way around. And so they may also have a spiritual attraction, which has to do with beliefs and values that they perceive each other as having similar beliefs and values, or perhaps one even sees the others having a superior set of beliefs and values to his or her own. And when that happens, then these two people find themselves attracted, and it does not necessarily mean that they'll fall in love, but it certainly increases the likelihood that they will. And they may fall in love without ever having gone through what we call being madly in love, quote, end quote. Madly in love is when, as that relationship develops, it begins to become more and more intense so that finally, one, and if both of them are in this state of being madly in love, both wind up thinking a great deal about the other person. As a matter of fact, it can get so intense that it can become obsessive up to 85% of their waking hours. They start changing their habits to make the other person happy. They, they start changing the way they dress, for example. They lose weight or gain weight, start working out. They change the way they fix their hair, change the makeup. They do whatever they think the other person wants them to do so that they can be with each other. If anyone comes between the two of them, that person may well be viewed as an enemy. So let's say they're two single people, but maybe the girl is only 17 or 18 years old and the guy 19 or 20. And the mother might be saying to her, you know, you shouldn't be involved with him. He's too old for you. And if she's already moved into the state, even in the early stages of it, called madly in love, then she may view her mother as the enemy, at least when it comes to what's going on with this young man that she's fallen in love with. Now, you may or may not have gone through such a process if you are married or if you are in love. It may be that you processed through a way that you were attracted to each other in some fashion or another, but it never went through this kind of ecstasy that I'm describing so that it became so obsessive in a way that you thought about each other and how you begin to change things just to make the other person happy. Because the kind of ecstasy I'm talking about, this quote, madly in love, end quote, we actually have a word for it in the social sciences. We call it limerence. It actually begins to change what happens in a person's brain so that there is more dopamine produced in the brain, and that's a feel-good chemical. And as a matter of fact, it can create senses of ecstasy. 
At the same time, there's a decrease in serotonin. Now, among other things, serotonin is a calming chemical. That's why you may have heard of drugs that are called SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, such as Prozac. That was the granddaddy of them. And today they are in various brands, various cousins of that, if you will, like Zoloft and Lexipro and all kinds of things like that. And the reason that they are used so much in helping people with depression problems, for example, is that they help to calm you down because they actually help to increase the levels of serotonin in the brain. They don't produce serotonin. They just help there be more serotonin in the brain through a process too complicated to try to discuss right here. And so when that serotonin decreases and that dopamine increases in the stage that we call limerence, this sense of ecstasy becomes overpowering. But understand it because serotonin is a calming chemical, the decrease in the serotonin makes a person somewhat, now when they're with the LO, that's the limerent object, the person they're madly in love with, they feel peace and wonderful all within because of the fact that, wow, this is the person I'm in love with. I want to be with for the rest of my life. But if that person indicates any displeasure, acts as if he or she is unhappy or anything like that, then the person might become very agitated. Like, oh, my goodness, I love you so much. How in the world can I live the rest of my life without you? And so there is that fear factor. And fear always intensifies passion. Now, when I talk about limerence, I don't know that anybody else describes it this way. I describe it this way based on what I have witnessed with thousands of people with whom I've worked. Not everybody, as I just said, goes through limerence, but many people do when they fall into love, if you will, into this madly in love state in a relationship. And by observing that over the years, I've come up with these three stages or phases. The first phase is when a person is actually going into limerence. And it's the stage where a person might try to or wish to pull away from the relationship. In other words, I like the way it feels. I like the way this is going. But it's also a little scary for me. Or, or maybe, maybe I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to make the sacrifices it will take to be in this relationship. Like, for example, uh, I want to go off to college if it's somebody who's very young. And if I get into this relationship, I don't know if I actually will. So maybe I need to pull out of this now. Or I really need to develop my career and, and become really successful before I get uh, really involved with somebody. And I can tell that this thing is becoming pretty deep. And so what I need to do is to back off and just leave this relationship altogether. Or let's say that the limerence is being felt by someone who is not single, but someone who is married. And so here is a guy married to his wife. We'll just call his wife Mary. And here's this other woman that comes into his life. We'll call her Sally. And he starts developing this limerent relationship with Sally. And as he goes into it, he begins to realize, wait a minute, I, I'm falling in love with her, or at least I'm beginning to develop these intense emotions for her. And I don't think that's the way I should be doing this because I'm married. And so I need to stay with my wife. I need to do what's right. Let me pull away from this. In that first stage, therefore, somebody may actually pull away, may not go ahead and go into what we call phase two or what I call phase two or stage two of limerence because of the fact that eh, I don't think I want to pay the price that's involved in this or, or because of the fact that the other person also begins to vacillate and have some fears and begin to pull back. And so rather than they're both going into phase two, which is what I call full-fledged limerence, he or she or both just back out. I don't want to be in this state. Now, if they actually get into stage two, 
and one can get there faster than the other. But let's just say in the situation I described, let's say it's a married guy here, and a married guy's in, in married to one, but he's in love with Sally. She's the limerent object. And let's say that Sally's already moved into stage two, or at least upper, upper levels of stage one of limerence. So it's pretty intense for her. And then this gentleman, this man in her life, the one she's falling in love with, even though he's married to somebody else, begins to pull away from her. She, if they've really been developing this relationship, by talking to each other, which, by the way, almost always happens when limerence develops, that people don't just talk. They begin to open up their minds, begin to open up their hearts, begin to share things with the other person, sometimes things that they haven't shared with anybody else ever, or maybe they did a long time ago. So in this example of this gentleman that I'm talking about, back at the beginning, maybe he was that open and transparent with his wife. But over the years, life tumbled in, they got busy, Maybe she became a little judgmental. I don't know. There could be all kinds of things going on here. So that finally he's not being that open, transparent person to her anymore, nor is she to him. And then Sally, the woman we've been talking about, comes into his life. They begin to visit. Maybe they work together. Maybe maybe they actually have lunch out just out there off, outside their office buildings in the same area, and she's working for one company and him for another. Maybe they've met in some other fashion through some best friends. They may have met at church. Sometimes it will even be that, you know, this couple and that couple are best friends, and the wife out of that couple and the husband out of this couple begin to develop this relationship, or vice versa. And what happens then is they begin to open up and share about what they think and what they feel and what they dream, and the other person accepts them. Not only do they learn an amazing amount of what's important to the other person, but this emotional bond becomes so strong that in the situation we're describing, if he, this husband in this imaginary situation I've been talking about, is still a little bit lower than Sally in this stage one, or maybe she's already gone into stage two, and he starts trying to pull away. She knows a lot about him. If he's been open and transparent and vulnerable, as is almost always the case when this occurs, so that when he tries to pull away, she knows the right things to say, the right things to do. Even about things he hasn't said to her, but she's been so close to him and watched him so carefully that she knows him pretty well and can often pull him back into it. If they both get into stage two, whether they're single or married, when they're in stage two, if both of them are there, then it is intense. And that's when it truly is the case that anybody who tries to come between the two of them is the enemy. And they all want to get away from those people. And so if that's the 17-year-old who's in love with a 20-year-old and her mother is saying, don't be involved with him, in that case, as I said earlier, mom becomes the enemy. Or in the situation of the married man I've been describing as his wife, is coming between the two of them because she's saying something's going on here. I can tell that something's going on. You, you need to talk to me. You need to be careful about where you're going, what you're doing, what you're saying, etc. Then she, that wife will become his enemy because she now stands between him and the LO, the limerent object, Sally, the woman that he's madly in love with. As a matter of fact, at this point, he might even begin to change his beliefs and values. You say, what? Now, in a situation where two people are single and falling in love with each other, and they move into the upper levels of stage one, or finally into stage two of limerence, typically that's not a contradiction of their beliefs and values. In other words, I'm single, you're single, we can be together. We've already thought about the cost 
at least back early on in the relationship, back when we, re- we really would count the cost, because that's what you do down in early phases of stage one. That's when you would think, no, this is going to leave me where I don't want to go. I don't want to be involved in this and pull out. But they've gone past that now. They're back up here in, in phase two. And they may begin to change beliefs and values if they think anything about their beliefs and values will be keeping them apart. So, for example, let's say you have a Protestant who has married a Catholic. And the Catholic has let the Protestant know, you know, you'll have to be Catholic if we ever have a full-fledged relationship, if we were ever to think about getting married because I cannot marry a non-Catholic. Then he may change from his Protestant religion to the Catholic religion, changing his beliefs and values so that he can be acceptable to her. The other kind of changes in beliefs and values that we see are not like that, where a person says, okay, let me become part of your religion. They tend to be more in the case of the situation I've been describing in the imaginary husband earlier, that he's in love with this well, he's married to one person, but he's in limerence, and that's madly in love, if you'll let me use that way, limerence with Sally. And he realizes, I can't do this because of the fact that my belief and value system that I'm married to this other person, and I should keep my marriage vows. And I am now so overwhelmingly emotionally involved with Sally that I've definitely broken those vows. And by the way, Most people, by the time they reach phase two or stage two of limerence, are involved with each other sexually. Everybody, but nearly everybody. There are those such things as what people would call an emotional affair. So this husband that I've been describing in this imaginary situation, if he has not yet become sexual with Sally, we'd call it an emotional affair. And while that can happen, and I have seen it happen, more often it's going to become sexual. And now the beliefs and values are a major problem for this guy. It's like, oh my goodness, what I'm doing is in contradiction to what I believe. He may not have had to have that conversation in his own mind in stage one of limerence, if in stage one they had not yet become sexual. It's at whatever point he begins to violate what he would think of as his core belief and values that it becomes a problem. Now, to begin with, he'll do what's called compartmentalized thinking. That is, he won't let the two things come together in his mind at the same time. His belief and value is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Let's say he's just now started sleeping with Sally, or at least has once. He'll feel some tremendous amount of guilt, but he'll say to himself things like, I'll I'll never do that again. That's wrong. As a matter of fact, he may pray, God, please forgive me, and I promise you that I'll never, ever do it again. Actually, Sally may participate in that prayer. She may say to him as well, what we did was wrong. We, um, we shouldn't do that. It's so bad. And they may even pray together. God, please forgive us for what we just did. And please don't let us do it again or help us not to do it again is more typically the way that people pray. And so that compartmentalized thinking is, okay, we've handled this now and we keep these things apart. And even though I feel these emotions for this other person, we, we're not going to do anything like that again. And of course, if they continue in a relationship with each other and they have been sexual already, it is highly likely that they'll become sexual again. And at some point, at some point, the guilt stops. The compartmentalized thinking even goes away because now they know they're in direct contradiction to their beliefs and values. And, and in that intense emotion of conflict within, this is what I believe in value, this is what I'm doing, and they're in direct contradiction to each other. I am violating part of my identity. I am violating this belief in value system I have within me. Now, 
I said the guilt goes away. I'm a little premature with that because now at this point, actually the guilt magnifies tremendously, but people can't live like that. Cognitive dissonance. Dissonance means disharmony and they just can't live like that. Now there's only two ways to resolve this disharmony, this dissonance. One is to stop doing the thing that's in contradiction to the belief and values and go back to the original belief and values. The other is to modify the belief and values to make what you're doing now okay. And so let's say in this imaginary illustration of the husband I'm talking about, he begins to feel that dissonance. He felt it some when he was still in phase one when he tried to pull away. But in our imaginary illustration here, Sally kept pulling him back because she knew him so well. Plus, he was highly attracted to her. He enjoyed the feelings of being able to be open and transparent and vulnerable to her. He liked what was happening inside of his brain that when he thought about her, these good feelings came over him because of the increase in dopamine. That when he was actually with her, the dopamine would get even stronger and it would be like, this is amazing. Nobody's ever felt like this before. Yet at the same time, the passion of that enhanced by the fear of, well, I shouldn't be doing this, or we may not wind up together because if I did what was right, and so all of those intense emotions, and now in the middle of that conflict of, oh, I can't do this because it's wrong if I don't stop doing it and go back to my original belief and value system, what I'll do is I'll modify my belief and value system to make this okay, that now I can do this. This is now all right. And that's what many people in limerence do. Now, if they're two single people, and they're not violating any of their own beliefs and values, then they typically will not change their belief and values. Everything works out okay. But even with two single people who are in phase two of limerence, if, for example, their religious beliefs are that you should be uh, married to have sex with each other, but they have become sexual with each other, they'll also feel some of this great guilt, at least to begin with, because of the cognitive dissonance. What we're doing is in contradiction to our belief and value system. How do you resolve that? I've already said, either you stop the action or you modify, you change your belief and value system to make this okay. And so typically what people in phase two do, if indeed their involvement with this limerent object, this person they're madly in love with, is bringing about activities or even emotions that are in contradiction to their belief and value system, if that limerence is strong enough, they won't stop what they're doing. They'll actually do what I just said. They'll change a belief and value system to make that okay. And then some interesting things start happening, not in the conscious part of the brain, but back behind the scenes, if you will. And so in our illustration with his imaginary husband here, he at this point might start actually vilifying his wife. What I mean is that he begins to see all of her flaws exaggerated and exacerbated and whatever good things there are about her begin to be minimized. If he compares the two of him, his wife and Sally, his lover, Sally's going to win because Sally will be viewed through what we call a halo effect while his wife will be viewed through a vilifying effect. You say, okay, vilification, you want to explain that, and that means he's actually exacerbating everything bad about her, making it bigger and bigger and bigger, so she becomes a bad person, at least bad enough that he can leave her. And so he'll be talking about, or at least start thinking about, wow, she was so very controlling, or she never really understood me, or I've been miserable for the last several years. 
By the way, that's when vilification actually moves into another little area called rewriting of history. So that not only is he exacerbating her flaws over her good characteristics, he begins to not even remember the good things about her and not even remember the good things about their relationship, only the bad things. And that's why we call it rewriting history. And that's when they'll say things like, you know, our marriage has been over for years now, even though up until that time, it really has not been the case. Or I've never been happy with you or you've been and it just becomes this big, big thing. And all of this is putting the spouse into a category in which it is easier to leave her or him, as the case might be. And while at the same time having this halo effect toward the lover and the halo effect basically says, because I think good things about you and feel good things about you, everything about you is good. Now let's go back to the two single people I mentioned earlier. Let's say it's the 17 year old dating the 20 year old and mama's not happy. And mama's saying he's too old for you. And then mama might start pointing out his flaws. I mean, like he's already dropped out of school and he can't even keep a job as a matter of fact, the people he's hanging out with are not reputable people. I mean, what kind of a career is this kind of going to have? Is he going to be a thief? And when that happens and, and mom starts doing that, I've already pointed out that not only well, I have already pointed out that mom then will become the enemy in her mind, but she'll look at those things and not see them at all. You just don't know him, mom. If you knew him, you wouldn't even think those kind of things about him. And then the things that she has to see, well, maybe he did drop out of school. Maybe he can't keep a job and has gone from one to another and gone through long periods where he had no jobs at all. She'll minimize the explanation of that will be something that is okay. Like, well, it's part of his process of finding himself. In other words, whatever evil, uh, evil's the wrong word, whatever thing you pointed out about him that's not good, Either she'll deny, or if she has to see it, she'll minimize it. It's not the big deal that you think it is. Now, let's move back to the husband. Here's the husband who's leaving his wife for Sally, his limerick object, the woman he's madly in love with. Whatever flaws she may have, he won't see because of the halo effect. And if he has to see them because they're just glaring him right in the face, then he will minimize them. Well, yes, but people are blowing that out of proportion. I mean, she's not like they think she is. She's totally misunderstood. And yes, she did have that run in with the law some time back, but it really wasn't her fault. As a matter of fact, I've listened to her story and I understand that she was actually railroaded to that whole situation. And in phase two of limerence, there's barely anything that could somehow pull these people apart other than one of them suddenly dying. Because in this state, it's like we were meant for each other. God meant for us to be together. And notice that we've been talking about this imaginary married man who knows he's committing adultery. We'll make him a religious man, a church guy. Let's say he was a deacon in his church. And he knows what the Bible would say about thou shalt not commit adultery and may the marriage better be undefiled. All those kinds of scriptures if he's a church guy. But he'll either... He'll either start reinterpreting those. Well, that's not what that means. What that means is this, or he'll start denying they have reality. Like, well, I know I believed the Bible before, but I don't now. It's just a book written by men. Oh, I know I used to be very involved in the church before, but now I'm just finally admitting the truth. It's just full of hypocrites that are all messed up people to begin with, and they're just judgmental, and what do they know about life? And sometimes, sometimes even God will become the enemy. 
like either there is no God, I've quit believing in him, or they changed the character and nature of God, that whatever they believed about him before is now changed to fit what they're doing now. And sometimes that can actually be helped by the, the other partner and the limited relationship feeding them information like, you know, the most important thing is God wants you to be happy. And this is making you happy. Therefore, this is the will of God. You understand in phase two, it's, it's intense. And if you try to talk to either of them and saying, logically, look at all the damage that you're doing, not just to the people that you love, but even to yourself, they won't hear any of that because it's like, you don't understand. Nobody's ever felt this way before. And if you say anything or do anything, I'll find flaws in you and I'll tell you just how bad you are. But there is always always a phase three. Unless, of course, somebody dies in the middle of phase two in a car wreck or a heart attack, but there's always a phase three. You see, Dr. Helen Fisher, she's a PhD, and she's a, an anthropologist that deals also with studying of the brain, and she and her colleagues have done some interesting work on this, taking people who identify themselves as being madly in love and putting them into an fMRI. That's a functional MRI, which takes a series of pictures. Not going to go into a lot of detail about that other than to say through the process that they do, that they're the ones who concluded about what's happening in the brain when it comes to the brain chemicals when a person is in limerence. They talk about more than the two chemicals I just have, which are dopamine and serotonin, but those are the only two I'll discuss here. And what they have discovered in their work, and she and her colleagues have studied this pretty intensely, is that this limerent state is not lifelong. Now, back in the 1970s, when Dr. Dorothy Tenov, again a PhD, who was the first one to coin the phrase limerence and wrote about it in her book, she did her studies in a different fashion. She just interviewed a lot of people, and one of her conclusions one of her conclusions was that limerence can indeed last a lifetime. We now know that's not the case. That limerence can evolve into a different kind of love that indeed can last a lifetime, but it's not the same as limerence. It's not going to be that same level of ecstasy, that same level of denying reality around you, that same level of everybody else being the enemy because they try to come between the two of you, that same level of halo effect where all I see in you is good, and I don't even recognize any bad. And if you force me to look at the bad, I'll explain to you how that you misunderstand it. It always, always will end. Either it evolves into a more realistic kind of love, which is not as ecstatic, but also not characterized by that great fear, and can see honestly what the other person is truly like. And it may involve it may evolve into that, but it's definitely going to come out of limerence, and that's what we call phase three. Top of the level of phase three, it's pretty much just like level two. It's intense. Nobody can talk to you about it. I mean, nobody understands how you feel. You, you can't even begin to describe it. This is the person you need to be with. And if it costs you everything to be with her or him, it's worth it. But as the limerence starts fading away, which means that the levels of dopamine begin to decrease and the levels of serotonin begin to increase, then you begin to lose some of that halo effect. You begin to see some of the flaws in the other person that either A, you didn't see before, or B, you minimize as not being a big deal. And now, now that you're having to see them, 
at the beginning, you may still try to minimize them, but if they continue to be glaring, you don't minimize them continually. Like, wow, maybe some of the things people were saying about you really I should have listened to. Now, they wouldn't have ever considered that thought in phase two, not ever. They may have considered it back in phase one, if they were in the earlier stages of phase one. When they're trying to at the end of phase one, that's almost phase two. They may not have listened to it then. But as they're going down toward the end, the end of phase three, then they begin to see those flaws. And, and now they begin to think about the cost again that they thought about back on the front end. Like, wow. What am I losing for this? What am I giving up? What is this costing me? And that's the reason, by the way, why so many people who, if they were married to one person and going to limerence with another and wind up leaving that marriage, divorcing the husband or wife, maybe leaving the children and losing lots of friends because now they don't go to church anymore because the church became an enemy. And some of their friends became the enemy because they were saying, what are you doing? I mean, you can't do this. Surely it's not who you are. And they get over to this end stage toward end of phase three and begin to realize the people they've given up, the friends they used to have. Uh, they are, if some people have even lost their occupations through this process. And then not only do they not have the halo effect toward the limit object anymore, but can actually start assigning blame. Like, wow, this is your fault. I mean, the misery I'm in right now financially or about the people that I've lost or not having any faith or whatever it might be. This is your fault. If it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't be in this mess that I'm in now. And that's why the vast majority of them, if they're married to one person and fall into limerence with another so that they end the marriage with the first person thinking they're going to marry the limerent object. If they go into the, the final phases of phase three, before they marry that person, they won't. I've seen it so many times. Now, if they're still at Edward Hills in phase two, yeah, they can go ahead and marry each other. It happens. But if they are toward the lower end of phase three, they tend not to. And if they do marry each other in phase two and think, now we have each other, life is going to be amazing, this is what we were meant to have, Whenever they finally do go to phase three, I know, by the way, by the very fact that they're marrying each other, they actually speed up going into phase three. Then that's when they start counting the costs like, I'm married to you, but look, even when they married in phase two, when it was amazing, they still will go through phase three. So limerence typically ends then in one of three ways. You wind up together. If you wind up together, the fear factor begins to disappear. And as the fear factor goes away, the intensity of the limerence begins to fade, and that puts you into phase three. Another is, of course, if they didn't wind up together, but one of them finally came out. And typically, typically, whichever person went into limerence faster is the one who comes out first and comes out fastest. And so like back in that husband situation we described earlier, let's say he went in slower than Sally, the limerence object, his lover, and in phase one, when he tried to pull away, but she had been so open and transparent, she knew so many things about him, she knew how to pull him back. And so back again and again and again until finally, finally they were both in phase two and he wouldn't even think about leaving her. If she was the one that went in first and went in fastest, then she probably, almost all the time, is the one who will come out first and come out faster. And now it's him trying to pull her back. 
saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, look at all the things I've given up for you. I, I intended to spend the rest of my life for you. Now, I can illustrate this with two songs. You can look the lyrics up. I'm not going to quote them in entirety uh, just to make sure <laughs> I don't violate any copyright laws. But if you remember the song, When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge, it pretty well summarizes all the research out there by Limerence. She can do no wrong, he says. That's the halo effect. He'll turn his back on his best friend if he puts her down. That's that thing of if any, anybody comes between the two of you, um, uh, that person becomes the enemy. I mean, just go look up the lyrics sometime tonight, if you will, when a man loves a woman, and you'll see statement after statement after statement that explains what I was just talking about. This amazing, amazing thing. And even to the point of the tremendous amount of influence the other person has so that he'll sleep out in the rain if that's the way she says it ought to be. Because that's how much influence the limerick object, the person you're manly in love with, has on you. But there's another song out there, too. This one by Bob Seger is called Against the Wind. And while it's not about limericks directly, when a man loves a woman really is, but this particular song by Bob Seger, Against the Wind, is not about limericks directly, but it's got something about limericks in there that's pretty powerful. He talks about how she was the queen of his night, and they'd listen to the radio playing low, and how she swore that it never would end. And then later he says, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. What's that, Bob? It does end. She swore that it never would end, but what I now know is that it does. I wish I had known that then, but I definitely know it now. And so then the person usually winds up alone. And so the first way, as I was describing, is they wind up together, and that begins to end limerence. It doesn't make it go away immediately. The second is if one of them pulls away and does no longer reciprocate, then the other one, the one who is being abandoned, will actually intensify limerence for a while, trying to get him or her back, and they'll just be whining and sad and lonely and forlorn. I've lost the love of my life. How can I live without this? Or the third way is that some people become limerent addicts. What I mean by that is about every three to five years they're in a brand new relationship, and this is the one. This is the one I was supposed to be in all the time because they love that ecstasy. They love that high. Now, if you're out there and you're listening, and many people who listen to me, of course, have marriages that are in trouble because of the workshops we do for marriages in crisis. If indeed, if indeed you're one of those people, then you're thinking, wow, uh, but if my spouse is in limerence, what do I do? Well, if your spouse is early in phase one, you actually may have a chance at that point to get him or her out of it. You probably aren't going to scare them out of it, nor are you going to threaten them out of it. Like, if you get into this, I'll divorce you. I mean, it could work. That's a possibility, but I don't think that's probably going to be the best. But when they're in the early stages of limerence and you begin to realize that something's going wrong, if then you intensify your intimacy. Now, I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about your openness, your transparency, your vulnerability, where, where you make it very possible for him or her to not be afraid to tell you the truth. So you sit out on the front porch if you have one. No phones on, no TVs around, no kids playing around your feet. And you just talk and you talk openly and transparently and give your spouse the opportunity to do the same, then you may actually be able to rescue him or her out of the early phases of stage one because they're probably already at that point having some vacillation if indeed they're married to you and they're falling into limits with somebody else. When they're in phase two, 
that doesn't work. There are things you can do in phase two, and we talk about it. Like, for example, if you go to our website, marriagehelpford.com, and then put a forward slash and then write one long word, save my marriage, all small letters, marriage helper, that's marriagehelper.com, slash save my marriage. You can actually find out there about a 10-week-long course that we do, and you do it online. We have coaching calls that go along with it, but you watch videos, you have workbooks to work through, and you do it online, and it can tell you the things that you do, understanding, though, this, that while your spouse is in level two or stage two, phase two, whatever way you want to call it, it probably is not going to have a whole lot of effect right then. You say, then why would I do it? Well, obviously, if you wish, you can just divorce the person because he or she is involved with somebody else. It is your right. You can do so. But if you want to save your marriage, then what you want to do is this. You have possibly, even probably, been vilified. In other words, he or she, your spouse, who's been abandoning you for this other person, may have been exacerbating all of your flaws. And I know that you have flaws because none of us is perfect. And they're looking for any and everything you do to be able to use it against you. And so if you become angry and lash out, it'll just convince them that they're right when they vilify you. See, I knew I was right about him or her. If you try to become very controlling and demanding, the same kind of things. Now, don't misunderstand. There are times when you still need to draw some boundaries and say, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And in those cases, your spouse will, con- will accuse you of being controlling and abandoning, uh, controlling and demanding. But we're talking about not doing it in such a way now where the other person can honestly vilify you. Some things you have to do, and they'll vilify you anyway, but those you'd have to do. But in other words, what you're doing here, what I'm trying to say is, in this situation, you're doing your best not to hand any ammunition to your spouse or to your spouse's lover to say, look, see? You really don't want to be with that person anymore. Look how bad he or she is. Now, understand this principle. People don't leave what they have unless they believe what they're going to is better. And if your spouse has indeed left you for a limerent object, a lover, another woman, another man, if he or she's done that, then you understand through this process of limerence that I've been describing that your spouse sees that person as better a choice. That being with him or her is better than being with you. Now, I know that hurts. And, and forgive me that I'm not saying that as compassionately as I should or could. I'm just trying to be very factual here before I start taking some phone calls. And if ever you want him or her to come back, if you want a shot at saving your marriage because you love him or her, and you know, you know that the way that he or she is behaving now is not the person that you were with before. That this limerence, these chemicals in their brains have got them doing all kinds of crazy things, saying mean things, being hard and critical, and maybe doing things they never did before, like drinking, carousing, running around, all those kinds of things, even maybe ignoring the children. I mean, behavior that just would not have been what you would have expected from her or her before. You understand that when they start coming out of limerence, if you really want to try to rescue that person, then you're going to start laying the foundation now, whatever stage they're in, late one, full-fledged two, early three, you're going to start laying the foundation now so that that vilification process will begin at some point to turn around. Because by being understanding and gracious and kind and gentle, 
it's hard to vilify you. And so when they finally get down to the end of phase three and are coming out of limerence, that they will turn to you and think being with you is the best thing. Because you understand, if they still are vilifying you or if they have so rewritten history, when they finally get to the end of age, stage three and they end it with that limerent object with the person they're having the affair with, it does not mean they'll come back to you. Because if they've been vilifying you and rewriting history, they'll actually view being alone as being better than being with you. So don't think they're immediately and automatically going to come back at the end of stage three. So that's why we have a course like Save My Marriage online course I've been talking to you about. So that you can do all the things you need to do so that when your spouse finally reaches the end of that limerent state, even if they have been vilifying and rewriting history, they begin to look at you in a different light because you have not been whining and pleading and begging. You have not been controlling in a way to manipulate. You have not been mean and vicious and cruel. You've not been lashing out in anger. You've been this amazing person that they can talk to, hoping that they will talk to. Don't expect them to do a lot of talking in the middle of phase two or even early in phase three. But when they finally do start talking to you, they begin to see, wow, I think being with you is a better thing. Now, understand there's some other things going on here as well. It may be that they feel such guilt when they finally come out of phase three. They still think being along, alone is better than being with you. And it's not now because they're vilifying you, but it's because being back with you basically says, look how much I messed up. Look at all the terrible things I've done. I've done so much harm to you that coming back to be with you will make me feel guilty as all get out. You say, well, I don't, if, if they're feeling that, it's still the same thing for you to do. You are that calm, gentle, strong, loving person that we talk about all through that course. So that even if it's guilt that keeps him or her from coming back to you to begin with, because they see being alone as being better than being with you, because of the guilt they think they'll feel if they come be with you, you still do the very same thing. Or even if, even if, as part of what they've done when they changed, they begin to experience parts of a lifestyle that they have found some attraction to. Maybe they started drinking heavily, and, and now they like to drink. Or they started using drugs, and now they like that. Or, or because of the fact that when the limerence begin to fade, they actually sublimated that drive to be with the lover into being with somebody else. In other words, it's not uncommon. It doesn't happen all the time, but it's not uncommon when a person's coming out of limerence that he or she'll wind up being involved with some other people sexually that they don't really care much about. But what they're doing now is they're basically acting out. They're rebelling against the fact that the other person's left them and not going to be with them anymore. And so they're mad about that. They're not ready to come back to you because of the things we've just been describing. And so they may wind up sleeping with a, another person or two or three or Four, I mean, I don't mean to paint a terrible picture and make you think, oh, my goodness, life's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't mean to do that, but I'm just saying in some cases that's what happened. And they wind up in this really different lifestyle than what they had before because what they're really doing now is, well, they're rebelling. They're rebelling against everything they had before because they made this decision. They went after this person. And this most often happens when the other person is the first one to come out rather than them. And they feel abandoned by that person. Also understand that sometimes they'll take on 
a sense of responsibility for people in the other person's life. Like, well, what about her children? I've become close to them. What will happen to them if I come back home to you? And I know you don't want to hear that because you say, my goodness, shouldn't they have more concern for their own children than for the children of the person they've been involved with? I mean, what about his kids? Why not coming back here and loving his kids? And we need to understand that nothing about this is logical. It's all about emotions. And he has for a while, because of that limerence, assigned value to those children, to his lover's children, for example, in the illustration I'm giving. And the fact that she ends it with him or he ends it with her doesn't necessarily end what he has been doing in terms of associating and emotionally connecting with those children. You say, well, I'll just divorce him or her. You can. I mean, it's your right. But if you're willing to be a little patient and say, I know there's a good person inside there, and then continue to be that person that we're talking about that you should be, if you do that, then you still got a shot at getting him or her back and having actually a better husband or wife than you had before, not because of what happened, but because of the wake-up call and all that he or she has learned about self and all that you've learned about you. Now, if there's anyone out there listening, I'm going to give one more thing. It starts with the phones here. You might be saying, okay, Joe, I'm, I am toward the end of phase three. I see this other thing coming apart. That might either mean that your emotions toward the lover have diminished quite a bit, or it may mean that she or he is pulling away from you. And if you're thinking, how, how do I control these emotions? How do I quit obsessing about the other person? How, how can I stop feeling these things? Let me just give you a couple of things that you can do. Now, these are not the be all in though. I'm actually working on some things right now for people who want out of limerence. Let me just give you two quick things. It will not be all that we come up with later. One is go see your medical doctor and ask him or her to prescribe as high a dose as is medically relevant to you of Zoloft. Zoloft is an SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's interesting that Fisher and her studies has found that Zoloft, uh, it's one of the stronger SSRIs, Zoloft can actually diminish some of the effects of limerence. Why? Well, it first of all increases serotonin. And one of the things that makes limerence so powerful is the decrease of serotonin, which creates kind of a fear underlying base to it. I'm not sure how it it affects dopamine, if at all, but at least affecting your serotonin can make a difference. So the first thing you do is you get that. And the second is you may actually benefit from getting into a 12-step group. Now, right now, I don't know of one for limerence, <laughs> but, and you probably won't do well if you go to one called Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, if indeed you aren't drinking or taking drugs, because what they're talking about won't really fit you. If you are taking drugs or drinking, get into one of those because the 12-step program is really powerful. It might be that the second thing you could do, if, if AA is appropriate or NA, get to those. If not, if not, then you may want to go find a church in your area that offers a thing called Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery is a 12-step program that's not as specific as AA and NA and SA, SA Sexaholics Anonymous, but it's still a 12-step program. And a combination of the two, a combination of the two, meaning the Zoloft, as high a dose as your doc will give you, and understand that your doctor, of course, will, first of all, make sure that it's not contraindicated by other medicines or medical conditions. 
I mean, it has to be a physician that writes that prescription for you. And if your doc will indeed write as high a prescription as he or she can for that, because it's okay for you to have that, and you get it to a 12-step group, that can help right off the bat. That can help. And if you want to see a counselor, at that point, I would recommend not a marriage counselor, but an addiction counselor. You say, I'm not an addict. Well, there are some similarities between limerence and addictions because of the brain chemicals and stuff. And the way that you will keep wanting to go back to, back to, back to that other person, I think that probably in all likelihood, an addiction counselor can help you with that more than anyone else. Well, I've talked a long time about this. Let's start taking some of the phone calls. We are now going to area code 724. Hello, 724. You're on the Joe Beam Show. Hi, Joe. This is Erica. How are you tonight? I'm good. Um, I just wanted to ask a quick question. Um, so okay. I'm not exactly sure what stage of limerence my husband is in. Um, at this point, I would venture to think that it's the second stage due to um, mm-hmm. his, lack, his lack of interaction with our child mm-hmm. and, um, and me. And, um, and so I guess my question is, um, so his other woman, I've talked to you before, but his other woman is pregnant mm-hmm. um, and she's due in about two months. And mm-hmm. so he will, um, he had said before that he wanted to see our child more. He did that for about a week and then it dropped off and he actually sees him less than, uh, mm-hmm. than he did before to almost, mm-hmm. you know, one night a week. And so um, I guess I'm just struggling with I'm, – I'm really trying to show mercy and grace and kindness toward him when I do see him mm-hmm. so that he doesn't mm-hmm. have a reason to vilify me. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess I'm just concerned or not sure if I'm being, um, you know, like too nice or, or too accepting of things to make it seem almost more like being a doormat of niceness than – I'm being nice to you while still kind of being firm. And um, I guess I'm struggling with maybe potentially being able to set boundaries what? because he'll say mm-hmm. that he'll come and then he doesn't come. Um, and I don't appreciate that because if he says he's coming and then I don't make plans and then he doesn't show up, now I've put my life on hold instead of doing something right. for myself and my child. Gotcha. Uh, I think it's a wonderful thing that you're being as strong as you are, but as you know, there'll come a time when you, that will wear out. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I imagine already you're beginning to think, how long can I do this? I think yeah. you're exactly right when it comes to being kind and gentle and understanding is powerful. But when you are perceived as being somebody that's going to do that no matter what, in other words, I can tell you I'm going to be here, you rearrange your schedule, then I don't show up. Oh, but you're still going to be nice and gentle about that. That's when, that's when people perceive you as the doormat. And that's when you begin to think of yourself that same way. Like, really? I did all this and you didn't show up? And so mm-hmm. while I'm, I'm impressed and happy with you that you are being that gentle, kind, sweet person, good for you, I would suggest, and of course you understand that you always have to make your own decisions. I can't do that. But I would suggest that you do put some boundaries in place. And in this particular case situation, it might even be what we would call a criteria. Now, the difference in a boundary and a criteria is a boundary saying you can't do this. And if you do it, this is the consequence. Criteria, on the other hand, says you've got to do this. 
And if you don't do it, this is the consequence. And the criteria could be something like this. Okay, when we agree that you're going to come spend time with your child, and it's going to happen on a certain date at a certain time, you will do that once we agree to it. And if you don't, then this is the consequence. Now, you've got to determine what the consequence is going to be. You understand that when a person is in full-fledged phase two limerence, the consequence you set may appear at least at this time not to be a big deal. So, for example, if you said, if you, if you miss the next time, then here's the deal. Uh, you're not going to be able to see your child for blank. And I'm, I'm just kind of talking in general here. Because of where he is and what's going on in his life, he may think, okay, that's all your fault. And he starts blaming it on you. The reason I can't see my child is because of you. In other words, he doesn't really see it as a big consequence to himself as of right now. But if you know that it is a consequence that does, with time, carry some power, and that it helps you, among other things, keep your life on track so that you don't, you're not there at his beck and call, having to do whatever he wants to do, and he wants to do it, then that still is a consequence that even if he doesn't see the power of it right now, he will with time. And even if something happened where he never saw the power of that consequence, you still know you did the right thing for the child, your child, and the right thing for you. What okay. do you think about that? Does that make any no, sense yep. to you at all? It does. And that's the thing I was just, I think I need to just figure out what the consequence could be. I think that's where yeah. I struggle because he doesn't live at home with me and I right. don't see him and we have basically no communication at all. Um, right. And so if he doesn't see our child for two weeks, I don't talk to him for two weeks. Mm-hmm. So now, that's where I struggle have, with what I can even do. Uh, I understand. Have there been any legal actions yet? There have not been. Um, I will file for child support and custody um, sometime before his other baby is born, just so that Good. my child gets the Good. most amount of money. Um, and we actually have something set in place. Um, because the plan was for him to move back in with the um, other woman when the baby comes because um, he's not living. Well, he might be now, but he wasn't living there for a period of time. And so um, I need to make sure that if she does file, and even if she doesn't file, that at least he kind of has a natural consequence where he is required to pay child support because now he will pay, but he um, will pay whenever he feels like it during the month and he's paying less than what the state would require him to pay. Hmm. And when, when is this other child due? Um, the baby is due um, like late, mid October, like around the 20th. Okay. So, so you're going to file before very long. The fact that he's not paying what he should pay now, not doing what he should do. I'm just curious as to why you don't file now rather than waiting closer till October. <laughs> um, it's honestly probably a fear thing. Um, it's ridiculous to say like, oh, I fear that he won't come back or he won't be there when he's not here now. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, I think it's more of a fear thing of actually um, putting the consequence and, and taking action against him and making me, um, I don't know, appear to be this like horrible person because of what he's doing. Right. And, and he very well may make you into that horrible person. This is all your fault. You did this, you terrible person. But, but when you know in your own heart that your motivation is the, is the fact that you need to take care of your child and mm-hmm. that 
that he needs to have a schedule and that he needs to keep that, then you know that even if he accuses you of being manipulating and controlling by doing this, you know that's not your motivation. You know that your motivation is this is the right thing to do for my child and actually the right thing to do for him because of the fact that he's not being very responsible right now. And so, yes, he may react that way, but the peace you can have in your own mind is it's still the thing I need to do because it's the right thing to do for my child, the right thing to do for me, and really the right thing to do for him. I'm not telling you when to do it or how to do it. Obviously, I don't, <laughs> I don't have to live your life, and so therefore it's not my right to tell you what to do because if any consequences come, I don't have to face them. But I'm just saying I understand how that fear works and how it can immobilize you. Mm-hmm. But you, uh, we've talked a few times on the radio before. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed with your strength. I'm impressed with your intelligence. I'm impressed with your motives. I'm not saying your motives are absolutely 100% pure because I don't know if anybody's ever are. But, but I've, I've talked with you enough to, to assure you, young lady, that, that you're thinking well, that you're not out for vengeance, that you're trying to do the right thing. And so I encourage you to do that now. And as part of that, to look at him and say, and, and here are the criteria you're going to spend this time with your child or when we talk to these judges about this stuff, I'm going to be telling him that you don't show up to spend time with the child and that's going to affect what happens to your relationship with the child in the future. And that's not a threat. That's not trying to beat him up. That's not trying to manipulate him. It's just saying you have a responsibility. And unfortunately I'm having to enforce that, but I will. Now, did I get angry with Alice way back in the day when she took all those strong stands against me? Yes, I got mad. Did I vilify her even more? Yes, I did. But when finally I came to my senses, I looked at her and thought, this woman's a lot stronger than I thought she was. And it actually became attractive in the long run. Now, I can't promise that's what's going to happen for you. But I think for your own peace of mind, that continuing to be strong and going ahead and making decisions might be the best for you and your child and even for him. Thank you. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd like to know how it turns out. Keep me informed, please. I, I will. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Have a good evening. Okay. That was in Philadelphia. Now let's go to Brooklyn. Hello, area code 917. You're on the Joe Bing Show. Hey, Joe. How are you? All right. I'm rocking and bopping. How are you? Okay, first of all, thank you very much. This has been a very insightful uh, um, uh, show that you had today, and I really appreciate it. I'm actually uh, in a situation where I'm a married guy, um, married for 17 years with four kids, mm-hmm. and I went through a situation of remnant, uh, uh, you know, this kind of love that we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um, there's two things that I want to bring up today. I, I want to just ask you to see if if there's anything to it or if there's any difference in what you describe. Those two things are as follows. The first thing is, is that I was in a situation where as much as you're saying, you know, we, we rewrite history in stage two or three. Um, mm-hmm. My marriage actually had some major, major, major effects or negative effects about 10 years back. Um, mm-hmm. Major um, life events that kind of caused my marriage to go downhill. And it was a few mm-hmm. years after that that I looked for, I was actually, unfortunately, I was seeking, um, I was going to, um, let's say, you know, illegal massage parlors, and I had met the girl there, and I was actually searching for, for a love or a connection, 
because mm-hmm. I was unhappy in the marriage at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the first question I, I wanted to ask you, is that is the rewriting of the history a guarantee? Because what I've been struggling with as I'm probably going through stage three right now is that I don't believe that my marriage and my wife got vilified because of this girl, but my marriage was on the rocks way before. So that's the first question I wanted to ask you. And then the okay, second well, question I wanted to ask let's you talk, Let's that, talk about that one. Let's talk about the first question first, because you've got a good point. Quite often we do see people vilify and rewrite history, but that doesn't mean that there can't really have been problems before that, obviously. And if those problems actually did exist and you've known them in a prolonged period of time to the point where you went looking for something, then I'd say, yeah, I, I definitely see that that happens and understand that. Uh, so, so yes, I agree with what you said in the first question that definitely can happen. There really can be problems, really big, serious problems that, lead up to these things. Okay. And so what's your second question, please? Um, just to add to that is that one of the biggest struggles that I've had is, you know, when I was at the point where I was actually going to get divorced um, to be with this girl, or even at the point now when this girl is kind of out of the picture and thinking about getting divorced, my biggest problem is, is that I keep going back to that guilt. Like, did I rewrite history or was my marriage really not, not good? And I'm struggling to to really be clear on that. So I just don't know how I'm going to ever figure that out. Like, did this girl ruin my marriage or or am I lying to myself? But then I keep going back to those events nine, ten years ago and and the feelings I had when we first got married, how I never really loved my wife. So it's a struggle Mm -hmm. that I don't know how I'm going to be able to figure out. Um, That's that. Um, The second question is, is it possible to go through stage three with a limit more than once, because I believe I've gone through stage three with this girl now my third time. Oh, yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. We call it three, and thank you for bringing that up. I actually meant to say that earlier, so thank you for reminding me. It's kind of a three steps forward, two steps back kind of thing. I, too, many years ago back, I mean, back in the 1980s for me, I went into a limit relationship with another woman, and I actually did divorce my wife. I left her, and I was divorced for three years. and I do know that uh, I went through phase three, or let's say it this way. I don't think I went through phase three. I went into phase three, and then I backed up into two. Then went back into phase three and backed up into two. So it's more of a, in my opinion, it's more of a three steps forward, two steps back than actually going through all of phase three. Uh, Does that sound like what you went through? uh, Yeah, kind of. I mean, the thing is like, oh, all the, the first two phase threes was actually me pulling away. And this mm-hmm. last phase three was actually her finally pulling away. Right. Um, so I guess I went through it twice and I guess now she's going through it for the first time. Yep. I relate to that. I relate to that a lot. Either and way. Just, on, that, on that other thing with the, with, um, with the rebounding of history, I mean, what do you suggest that I do at this point, assuming I can complete stage three and, have this woman completely out of my life. I mean, do I got to go back and try to fix this marriage or, or, or am I, can I be content in understanding that I'll never love or I never loved or my marriage has been over, you know, for the past 10 years of reality. And I'm just staying for the kids because they're the love of my life more than anything. So, or do I have mm-hmm. to really go now and try to fix this marriage? Cause I don't know if I have the emotional strength to do that. So really that's my question. That's my biggest struggle that I'm struggling with. I understand. How old are your children, these, these children who are the love of your life? My youngest is eight, and my oldest is 17. Okay. Now, the only way for you to know 
I think completely. And, and, and again, this is my opinion, so you obviously can reject it if you wish. But I think the only way you can know whether or not that marriage could be a good marriage is if you give it another shot. And I mean a real shot. Um, you know, if you phrase it in terms of do I have to, I, I can't tell anybody what they have to or don't have to do, obviously. But the fact that you have these children that you love so dearly would seem to me to be enough motivation to give it a try. To say, okay, let's see if indeed this marriage could be made good. Now, if not, then that's a different thing that comes up down the line. For fear of sounding like I'm giving you a commercial, I would suggest if you have not looked into it already, that you look into our Marriage Helper 911 course, which is a three-day intensive for people in a situation like you're in. And many people come through that three days with us, with their, with their spouse. You have to come through it together, of course. And use that as a litmus test to say, let's see if we think there's a possibility we can make this into a good marriage or not. Now, I'm not saying that you'll find that absolute answer in three days, but I'm telling you that through a three-day intensive workshop like we do, you could sure get a really good idea about the possibilities. And then if you choose to try to make the marriage work, we can show you how to do it. Can't guarantee it, but we can show you how to do it. I guess what I'm trying to say is it sounds to me it, and, and this is my opinion, but it sounds to me as if the only piece you're really going to find is to say within yourself, I did give it a good shot. I went back and I tried it and gave it my all. And if it works, wonderful. And if it doesn't, at least then you can look yourself in the mirror and go, okay, I know for a fact that it wasn't this other woman who ruined my marriage. I know for a fact that we couldn't live together, et cetera, et cetera. Because if, what you felt for that woman is anything like what I felt for the woman I left my wife for. I don't think I could have logically thought about my wife or my marriage as long as there was any vestige of the emotion that I had for her. Does that sound reasonable to you? Absolutely. Just two last things on that. One is, is that when I went through a stage three myself with this other woman, when I pulled away like uh, six, seven months ago, I mm -hmm. then at that point went to intense therapy with my wife. Mm -hmm. um, now, understand one other thing. My wife still till today doesn't know that I was in a limited relationship. So she, she's not actually not aware. I was never open with her about it. Fortunately mm -hmm. or unfortunately, I, you know, certain things she said at the time made me, you know, when, she, when you were going through major problems, made me, I guess, be scared to tell her because obviously we never had a relationship where I would even be comfortable to tell her. But we did go into therapy while I was in stage three. Now, of course, the other woman while I was in that stage three was somewhat on my mind, but Mm -hmm. We did do therapy while we, while me and the other woman were not talking, and that went nowhere. So, but again, mm -hmm. I mean, could it still be that she was in the back of my mind, and I was trying not to make my marriage work, thinking I can get back with her? Is that a possibility? I don't know. Sure, absolutely, it's a possibility. Plus, plus, what we do is not therapy. We don't do marriage counseling or therapy. We have a totally different approach to it, and. Um, in other words, you probably saw the therapist once a week for an hour or two for several weeks, something like that, probably. We do all hours in intensive three days. So, yes, in answer to your question, number one is, yes, she very well could have been still part of your mind. If, if you are anything like what I was at the time, that other woman was definitely still in my heart and mind. Back well, I'll tell you something interesting. When I went into the first stage, stage or the second stage to be with her, I went into it because she, she did something to hurt me really badly. Um, 
she kind of like did something really bad to me. So I actually had had, had anger towards her at the time when I went into stage mm-hmm. three. So I tried to convince myself that now I can go to therapy with my wife and it still didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. I I understand that anger as well. <laughs> it sounds like our stories are very similar, my friend. Very similar. Well, well we we should get together. But one last thing, then you got to go. But I mean, I, again, is it an issue that I haven't told my wife? How do I do this? Nine one one. My wife has no clue about what I went through. Well, you don't have to tell her for that. I mean, if the fact that you guys went to therapy together is enough that she knows that you're having some kind of problems. And so if you just were to say to her, Hey, I found this guy online and uh, he does his three day workshop. Let's, let's go give it a shot. Then. And of course, if she wants to, she can go to our website, marriage helper, that's marriage help ER, marriagehelper.com. She can see what we write about there. Not everybody who comes through our workshop has had an affair. People come to our workshops for lots of marriage problems. Like, okay. yeah, it's not just for people who've had affairs. It's for all kinds of marriage problems. Now, the majority who come, their marriage has been affected by an affair. The second biggest problem is when there's been control and, and domination issues. But I mean, every kind of thing you can imagine comes to our workshop. So it could be like, you know, I don't, our marriage is not where we want it to be, at least where I want it to be. Let's go try this. Here it is online. You can see what they do. And I actually asked the guy, and he said, no, you don't have to have, have an affair to come to this. It's for all kinds of marriage things. And where does this three-day workshop take place? We do one a month in the Nashville, Tennessee area. And right now, we do one a month either in the Dallas or Austin area. I see that your area code is Brooklyn. But the good news about Nashville is we have direct flights to uh, New York every day. Yeah, <laughs> I've, a, I've actually a been quick in flight. business, so I know, I know. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do, all right, is, my friend. Is it done during the week or is it done only on weekends? Or? We do it. It's all day Friday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Well, we end up Sunday about 4 to 4.30 p.m. on Sunday so people can fly back home. But it starts on a Friday morning at 8 a.m. and ends on Sunday about 4.30. Okay. So thank okay. you so much for everything. I appreciate it. Hey, okay. You're very welcome. You have a good evening. Thanks. All right. We're going to go from Brooklyn. I think this next one is Dayton, Ohio. I believe that's right. Hello, area code 937. You're on the Joe Beam Show. Hi, Joe. Hello. How are you? I am rocking and bopping. How are you? I'm okay. Um, thanks for doing this uh, podcast again to get some clarity. Um, I have a question. I'm not really sure in my situation really what stage my husband would be in. Um, I've spoke with you before, and he's out of state with the other woman. It's been nine months, and we don't have a lot of communication. Mm-hmm. Um, when we do, it's about the kids um, here and there, give or take every couple weeks or so, and it's positive. Um, he still doesn't talk to the, the oldest son, the 15-year-old. That's still shaky. Um, mm. So I, I just don't know – Without the communication, it's hard to gauge what yeah. stage he's in. And, you know, mm-hmm. like I said, the exchanges that we do have, they're pleasant. He initiates mm-hmm. hugs. He's not vilifying me. Um, Good. All of this stuff's still home. He's still paying all the bills. It's just he's physically not here. And mm-hmm. last week, um, I had talked to you about picking my son up um, after meeting him for a visit. And mm-hmm. um, he had called me on the way to meet him. And um, we got into the uh, – somehow I opened the door after the nine months of not talking about us, 
and talk to him a little bit about instead of writing the letter, because I wrote one back in February before I signed up for the course, I kind of mm-hmm. touched on how I felt and mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> apologized for the things that I felt that I did wrong in the marriage. And I kind of touched real, I was real cautious and just said, you know, I just know that, you know, God given, if God gives us the opportunity to try this again, then it can be something great. And he mm-hmm. even admitted, he said, you know, um, he said, I know I was a jerk and I know this, I went about this the wrong way and I know I can be stubborn. And he didn't say anything about, you know, coming home or anything like that. So I, right. I just figured what the heck I said, well, there's a workshop and I kind of briefly touched on that. And I said, you know, for a weekend, would you consider, you know, doing that? And he said, well, send me the information. Well, mm-hmm. um, when I got to the location where I was picking up my son at, um, I haven't cried the whole time. And this time, you know, that was a pretty intense conversation for me to tell him my feelings because I haven't told him since he's left. I've been calm, strong the whole time. Joe Bean mm-hmm. by the book, everything he's been saying. And um, so I was a little emotional and I, he gave me a hug and I finally told him, I said, you know, I hope that when you're on your trip for work that you watch the video, please just look at it and let me know what you think. And he said, okay, just, you know, send me the information. And I said, I do love you and I miss you. And he said, and he just hugged me and like patted my back. He says, I know. He said, it's going to be okay. And he says, I love you too. Now that could have been, you know, just pressure thing. I don't know, but that was a week ago. And I, I emailed him your video, not the reluctant spouse, but the other one. Um, and I emailed it to him on Monday and nothing. He didn't respond. I didn't hear anything from him. Well, yesterday he had texted me about seeing um, the 12-year-old because I think he's starting to get the picture that the other two aren't interested. Um, right. And so he was talking with my son, and I said, when you get done with your dad, tell him to call me. And so he called me when he got done with uh, our son, and um, I was telling him about, you know, what he had going on this week and that it wouldn't be a good time to visit or whatever. And I just lightly mentioned, I said, did you get a chance to um, read the email? And he said, honestly, was being on the road um, for a week. He said, I'll be honest, no, I haven't looked at the link yet. And I didn't push it. I just said, okay, thanks for your good. honesty and, and dropped it. And then good. I don't contact him. Like, I don't blow his phone up, and, you know, it's summer, so there's not a whole lot going on with the kids. But he was telling me yesterday, we just spoke briefly, that, you know, he he didn't sound right. And I said, are you okay? He said, well, I'm just not feeling good, you know, being on the road or whatever. My stomach's upset. So today I was just like, you know what? I'll just send him a little text message and said, hey, um, just wanted to say hope you have a good day. Hope your stomach's feeling better. I know it's rough when you're on the road. Have a good day. Nothing. So, okay. I mean, it's it's hard for me to gauge because I don't know, and I'm right. looking over everything trying to figure it out, but mm-hmm. I just don't know. You know, okay. it's hard with so the are distance. You, are you asking me what phase he's in? Is that what you're saying? What 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 do you think? What phase do you think he's in? <laughs> well, you realize, of course, it. Uh, I obviously cannot know because I've not talked to him. But yeah. Based on what you're describing, it does not sound like full-fledged phase two. Full-fledged phase okay. two typically is not that, that kind, that gracious, that you know, interactive, that you know, send it to me, I'll look at it. Full-fledged phase two is usually you know, arm's distance, those kinds of things. So 
based on what you're describing, and of course you do understand, I do not know, but based on what you're describing, yeah. it sounds like he is somewhere in phase three. That's what it sounds like. Now, okay. I'm hesitant to tell you that because I don't want to give you any false hope. At no, the same I completely time, understand. At the same time, I, I, still like what I'm hearing. I mean, every time we talked, I've liked, I've liked the fact that your oldest son has made a stand. I like that a lot. I like the yeah. fact that you're, that when your husband and you talk, that you actually are calm. I like the fact that he was actually willing for you to send him something to look at. And I wouldn't read too much into it. The fact that he hasn't, I mean, life can get really, really busy. And even when it's not really, really busy, sometimes we just don't feel like doing things. You know, it's like, I know yeah. I should do oh, that. And I but remember right now, the last I'm not time. into that. Yeah, and I remember the last time I spoke with you, you said that sometimes men process things. Yes. So, you know, maybe yep. maybe that's another thing too. But it's just right. hard on this end because, you know, it's not like we have – you see the kids every Wednesday and he's in the same town or I can at least have right. little exchanges. I understand. So it's, it's a little disheartening that I'm, you know, trying to be right. calm. I'm willing to be the safe place, but he's not reaching out to me, and I don't want to smother him. But right. then again, he's got this distance between us. Right. But every exchange is pleasant. He's not vilifying me. Like I said, everything is status quo, but he's not physically no. here. I got so, it. And I know it's frustrating for you. My, my suggestion is keep doing what you're doing right now. That's my suggestion. Right. And I know it's frustrating for you. And I know you want to have some kind of more definitive things going on. But I'm, right. I'm telling you, what you're doing is extremely strong. And what you're doing is extremely effective. If, if, if anything works, this will. Trust me, if anything yeah. works, what you're doing will. And I, I, just, I just really hope you want to get to this workshop. <laughs> yeah, I would love to have you there, too. Uh, well, see, and another uh, thing, I talked to you way in the beginning of this in December. And um, mm -hmm. back in, he left uh, two days before Thanksgiving. And mm -hmm. back around New Year's Eve, um, in the very beginning, there was no contact at all. Mm -hmm. And he had called me out of the blue uh, right before New Year's Eve. And, um, he wanted to give me a heads up because the other woman had looked me up on Facebook, found out he lied to her and that we were still married, that we were not divorced, right. and right. you, she had him leave. That. Remember right. that? Got, and so right. I'm thinking, I sure do. oh, so these would be big crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I understand. I understand, but you're still doing the right thing. I know it's frustrating. I've, I've got a whole bunch of callers left, and I'm almost out of time. I know. I <laughs> Okay, so just though. keep doing what you're doing now, okay? All right. Okay, thank you. Okay, you're very welcome. And now we're going to go over to Seattle. Hello, area code 360 in Seattle. You're on the air. Hi, Joe. This is Annie. How are you tonight? Um, I'm hanging in there. I'm sorry? Um, hanging in there. Okay, all right. Yes, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm playing the waiting mm -hmm. game. I'm working on my pies. I just started Good. your new book, The 21 Irresistible Recipes for Couples. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I kind of breezed through it, and now I've actually, I'm actually starting to read it, but it looks really great. I'm glad you put that out. Um, I'm not sure if you remember me or any of my situation. Um, I'm not sure what phase of, of limerence my husband's in. Um, he works out of town, leaves Sunday afternoon, and doesn't get back until late Thursday night. Um, this last Friday, he said that he um, was going to go look at a couple places 
for him to live. And I said, well, why do you need to do that? And he said, well, I need my space. And I said, yeah, but you're already gone Sunday through Thursday. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, why, why do you think you need to do that? And he accused me of being controlling, manipulating, and passive-aggressive. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not trying to be self-righteous. Um, maybe I am a little bit, but I see mm-hmm. him more being that way than myself. Um, um, okay. I asked so, him, you know, who would who mm-hmm. would be taking care of me, and he said he would. Um, mm-hmm. I, so, you know, I'm I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Should I make my continue to make myself available to him, as in when he comes home? I mean, he said, well, you know, if I do that, then you know, we'll still go out at night every now and then, and 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 or go to a movie. Uh, it, so, it is that what like you want to do? To... I want him back. That's what I want. I do, I, and I don't blame you one bit. The fact that he's gone a lot makes it easier, obviously, for him to think in terms of not being with you because he's traveling all the time anyway. The fact that he wants to move into another place where he wants his uh, his freedom or whatever it is he's looking for it's it's the kind of thing, and I understand. I know you love the man, and I really I know that you really want this thing to work. But if you continue to make yourself available to him, if he moves out, if he moves to another place, here are the pros and here are the cons. The pros will be that at least then you will still have some conversation and interaction with him, which can give you the ability to potentially recreate a relationship. The cons are, it kind of puts it in a situation where he may feel no pressure to do anything like, okay, I've got, I've got what I want and I don't have to worry about it. And now I can live where I want to live, do what I want to do. And if I take out my, my wife occasionally, then at least I can keep her off my back where she's not going to do anything legally. She's not going to do anything otherwise. So it's really a toss up here as to whether or not, okay, do I do this hoping that it keeps an opportunity available for us to interact with each other. So maybe come and work with this or, or is it like, Hmm, if he does this, then he really has no motivation to do anything different. Therefore, do I need to go ahead and do some things to start protecting myself? Like for example, getting a lawyer, uh, getting alimony, whatever those kinds of things, because in essence, if he moves into a different place, you will be separated. Right. Right. And, and it may be time. It may be time for you to sit down with an attorney and, and make, if you, if you do make sure you get good references on this attorney, people who worked with him or her before that, that really yeah. have good things to say about the attorney and say, say, okay, this is what my husband's doing. I just want to make sure that I'm protecting myself and everywhere I need to be protected since he is insisting he's going to live someplace else. I want to make sure that legally, and you can tell your attorney, you know, I really want to save my marriage. I really do. But at the right. same time, I always recommend, and of course, it's always your choice. I just make recommendations. I always recommend them, recommend that, that you tell the attorney, A, I want to save the marriage. B, if there's any kind of thing going on where it gets a little testy, I want you to be really, really tough. And the reason I want you to be tough is so that my husband will begin to recognize that he's not going to get everything he wants, that there are consequences to his decisions. Now, if you do that, 
probably what's going to happen if you were to do that is your husband will contact you saying, why are you being mean? Why are you doing this and, and attacking you and et cetera? If that happens, the way you respond is, well, you know, what I want to do is work on the marriage. And if you're willing to do that, that's great. I'm not the one wanting you to live someplace else. I'm not the one wanting to end this marriage uh, or anything like that. But as long as you insist on living someplace else, then I am going to follow my attorney's advice and do whatever he or she says. And so, in other words, what you do is you let the attorney be the gladiator, and you just be very kind and gentle. Well, you know, I'd love to work on the marriage. Happy to do that when you're ready. But if you're going to do this, then I'm going to follow what my attorney says. Sorry if that makes you angry, but I must follow my attorney's advice. You do that very calmly and gently, but very strongly, so that, that you let him know, I love you. I'd love to say this thing, but I am going to stand up for myself. And if you decide to live someplace else, there are going to be some consequences to that. If you, if you decide to go further than that in the marriage, there are going to be some consequences to that. And it's not because I hate you. It's because I love you, but I will take care of myself. Now, again, it's always your decision, but that's what we recommend because it positions you. As not. Your dog just scared okay. me to death. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I thought, oh, my goodness, there's a dog behind me. <laughs> I have only <laughs> headphones to do this radio, and I thought that dog was in the room with me. Okay. Oh, my gosh. I'm <laughs> anyway, sorry. It's okay. That's, that's what I would recommend. Now, you must do what you think is right, but it may well be time to find the attorney and at least have an initial consultation with him or her. I had wondered about that. The only problem I have is I don't have a, a full-time job. Um, to be able to afford an attorney. When it comes to things like this, a good attorney, now, again, I don't know exactly how it is up there in the Northwest where you live, but, but when it comes to an attorney, they, they know how, if the other spouse has the full-time job, they know how to make it where that, you know, the money comes through. Uh, I would just, first of all, find a really good attorney. Usually, at least in this part of the world where I live, the first visit, they don't charge you for anyway. And that's when you can mm-hmm. get in there and, and say, hey, you know, it would have to be this, that, and the other. And if you can find a good attorney, he'll do that for you. I would, I, if, it, if I were in your shoes, I'd at least try to find that attorney and have the first visit, if it were I. But, again, okay. it's, it's your choice. It's your choice. Well, no, I'm ask, and I'm asking for your advice what you would do. Um, the only offset to that is if I get my husband mad, then he won't pay the bills. Or what if he doesn't pay the bills? Oh, if, if, uh, if you have an attorney, he will pay the bills because what the attorney will do is go straight to the judge and, and say, hey, you know, this guy's got responsibility. She doesn't work for the full time. He does. And, and then a judge writes uh, an order. And if your husband doesn't pay it, then, then he has some pretty serious consequences. The law mm-hmm. is designed, and I'm sure it's the same in the Northwest. The law is designed to make sure that you are not going to be taken advantage of when it comes to that. And again, Find an attorney that you get some, ask around, find out people who had good experience with him or her and have that initial consultation. That's what I recommend you do right now. Okay. Okay. I have four right. grown children, two of which know what's going on and the other two mm-hmm. don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told my husband that, you know, if you move out, you need to tell the kids. You have to tell right. the kids. And he right. said, no, if they ask, you can tell them. And I said, no, it's your responsibility. And he 
disgustedly said fine, but that to me means he's not going to tell them. But I know well, they're going to be really upset. So the way you do um, that is this. You say, okay, you've got until the 13th, you know, you pick a day, to tell the kids. If you don't tell the kids, I will. But it's your job to tell the kids, and and when if I'm having if I have to tell them on my own when I start asking questions, I'm going to be very honest and open about it. So you're really better off if you come tell the kids. But if you don't, I will because if he doesn't, you need to. And then whatever the kids ask you, you be honest in the answers. Don't throw him under the bus when you talk to the kids. That's not going to benefit anybody. So don't throw him under the no. bus. But no. but at the same time, you can say, no, I don't want this to happen like this. I want things to work out. Okay, I'm, I'm, I've got a minute and 49 seconds left before the, I Thank lose you. my air here. Okay, okay you have a good evening. There's several more callers out there. I'm so very sorry I cannot get to you. I only, got a, I only have an hour. Um, I'm sorry, I can't talk now. A minute and 30 seconds left. Hopefully we can get to you guys next week. I intend to have a special guest next week that I think you're going to find very interesting to talk about limerence because it's a person who is still in limerence and is married to somebody else. Married to one person in limerence with another. That, if Unless something happens, that is my uh, episode next week, and I'll have that person. Until then, this is Joe Beam saying have a good evening.